Chapter Nine of the Afghan Wars, eighteen thirty nine to forty two, and eighteen seventy eight to eighty. Part One: The First Afghan War, by Archibald Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Nine: Retribution and Rescue. It was little wonder that the unexpected tidings of the Kabul outbreak and the later shock of the catastrophe in the passes should have temporarily unnerved the governor-general but lord auckland rallied his energies with creditable promptitude his successor was on the voyage out and in the remnant of his term that remained he could not do more than make dispositions which his successor might find of service every soldier of the army of retribution was dispatched to the frontier during lord auckland's rule lord auckland appointed to the command of the troops which he was sending forward a quiet steadfast experienced officer of the artillery arm who had fought under lake at deeg and burtpoor and during his forty years of honest service had soldiered steadily from the precipices of nepal to the rice swamps of the irrawaddy Pollock was essentially the fitting man for the service that lay before him, characterised as he was by strong sense, shrewd sagacity, calm firmness, and self-command. When his superior devolved on him an undue onus of responsibility, he was to prove himself thoroughly equal to the occasion, and the sedate, balanced man murmured not, but probably was rather amused when he saw a maker of phrases essaying to deck himself in his laurels there were many things in lord auckland's indian career of which it behoved him to repent but it must go to his credit that he gave pollock high command and that he could honestly proclaim as he made his preparations to quit the great possession whose future his policy had endangered that he had contributed toward the retrieval of the crisis by promptly furthering quote, such operations as might be required for the maintenance of the honour and interests of the British government. Unquote. Brigadier Wilde reached Peshawar with a brigade of four sepoy regiments just before the new year. He was destitute of artillery, his sepoys were in poor heart and the Sikh contingent was utterly untrustworthy. To force the Khyber seemed hopeless. Wilde, however, made the attempt energetically enough, but the Sikhs mutinied, expelled their officers, and marched back to Peshawar. Wilde's sepoys, behaving badly, were driven back with loss from the mouth of the pass, and Wilde himself was wounded. When Pollock reached Peshawar on February 6th, 1842, he found half of Wilde's brigade sick in hospital, and the whole of it in a state of utter demoralization. A second brigade, commanded by Brigadier General McCaskill, had accompanied Pollock, the sepoys of which promptly fell under the evil influence of Wilde's dispirited and disaffected regiments. Pollock had to resist the pressing appeals for speedy relief made to him from Jalalabad, and patiently to devote weeks and months to the restoration of the morale and discipline of the disheartened sepoys of his command, 
and to the reinvigoration of their physique. By kindness combined with firmness, he was able gradually to inspire them with perfect trust and faith in him, and when, in the end of March, there reached him a third brigade, comprising British cavalry and horse artillery, ordered forward by Lord Auckland, on receipt of tidings of the destruction of the Kabul force, he felt himself at length justified in advancing with confidence. Before daylight on the morning of April 5th, Pollock's army, about 8,000 strong, consisting of eight infantry regiments, three cavalry corps, a troop, and two batteries of artillery, and a mountain train, marched from the Jumrood camping ground into the portals of the Khyber. Pollock's scheme of operations was perfect in conception and complete in detail. His main column, with strong advance and rear guards, was to pursue the usual road through the pass. It was flanked on each side by a chain of infantry detachments, whose assigned duty was to crown the heights and sweep them clear of assailants in advance of the head of the central column. The Afridi hillmen had blocked the throat of the pass by a formidable barrier, behind which they were gathered in force waiting for the opportunity which was never to come to them. For the main body of Pollock's force serenely halted, while the flanking columns, breaking into skirmishing order, hurried in the grey dawn along the slopes and heights, dislodging the Afridi pickets as they advanced, driving them before them with resolute impetuosity, and pushing forward so far as to take in reverse with their concentrated fire the great barrier and its defenders. The clansmen, recognising the frustration of their devices, deserted the position in its rear, and rushed tumultuously away to crags and sungars, where knife and jizail might still be plied. The centre column then advanced unmolested to the deserted barricade, through which the sappers soon cleared a thoroughfare. The guns swept with shrapnel the hillsides in front. The flanking detachments pushed steadily further and yet further forward, chasing and slaying the fugitive hillmen, and the Duke of Wellington's observation was that morning fully made good that he had never heard that our troops were not equal, as well in their personal activity as in their arms, to contend with and overcome any natives of hills whatever. The whole British force, in its order of three columns, the centre in the bed of the hollow, the wings on the flanking ridges, steadily, if slowly, moved on in the assured consciousness of victory. It was sunset before the rear guard was in camp under the reoccupied Ali Majid. The Sikh troops, who were to keep open Pollock's communications with Peshawar, moved simultaneously on Ali Majid by a more circuitous route. While Pollock was halted opposite the throat of the Khyber, waiting for the demolition of the Afridi barricade, the ill-starred Shah Sujah was being murdered on his way from the Balahisar of Kabul to review, on the Siasung slopes, the reinforcements which Akbar Khan was clamouring that he should lead down to aid that Sirdar in reducing Jalalabad before relief should arrive. 
Ever since the outbreak of November, Shah Soojah had led a dog's life. He had reigned in Kabul, but he had not ruled. The Sirdars dunned him for money, and jeered at his protestations of poverty. It is not so much a matter of surprise that he should have been murdered, as that, feeble, rich, and loathed, he should have been let live so long. It does not seem worth while to discuss the vexed question whether or not he was faithful to his British allies. He was certainly entitled to argue that he owed us nothing, since what we did in regard to him was nakedly for our own purposes. Shah Sujah's second son, Fute Jung, had himself proclaimed his father's successor. The vicissitudes of his short reign need not be narrated. While Pollock was gathering his brigades at Gundamuk in the beginning of the following September, a forlorn Afghan, in dirty and tattered rags, rode into his camp. This scarecrow was Fute Jung, who, unable to endure longer his sham kingship and the ominous tyranny of Akbar Khan, had fled from Kabul in disguise to beg a refuge in the British camp. Pollock's march from Ali Majid to Jalalabad was slow, but almost unmolested. He found, in his own words, quote, the fortress strong, the garrison healthy, and except for wine and beer, better off than we are, unquote. One principal object of his commission had been accomplished. He had relieved the garrison of Jalalabad, and was in a position to ensure its safe withdrawal. But his commission gave him a considerable discretion, and a great company of his countrymen and countrywomen were still in Afghan durance. The calm-pulsed, resolute commander had views of his own as to his duty, and he determined, in his patient, steadfast way, to tarry a while on the Jalalabad plain, in the hope that the course of events might play into his hands. McLaren's brigade, which in the beginning of November 1841, General Elphinstone had instructed General Knott to dispatch with all speed to Kabul, returned to Kandahar early in December. Knott, in dispatching it, had deferred reluctantly to superior authority, and probably McLaren, not sorry to have in the snowfall a pretext for retracing his steps. Atta Muhammad Khan, sent from Kabul to foment mischief in the Kandahar regions, had gathered to his banner a considerable force. General Knott quietly waited until the Sirdar, at the head of some ten thousand men, came within five miles of Kandahar, and then he crushed him after twenty minutes fighting. The fugitives found refuge in the camp of the disaffected Dorani chiefs, whose leader, Mirza Ahmed, was sedulously trying to tamper with Knott's native troops, severe weather hindering the general from attacking him. Near the end of February, there reached Knott a letter two months old from Elphinstone and Pottinger, ordering him to evacuate Kandahar and retire to India in pursuance of the convention into which they had entered. The Dorani chiefs astutely urged that Shah Sujah, no longer supported by British bayonets, was now ruling in Kabul as an argument in favour of Knott's withdrawal. Knott's answer was brief. Quote, I will not treat with any person whatever 
for the retirement of the British troops from Afghanistan until I have received instructions from the Supreme Government. Unquote. A blunt sentence, in curious contrast to the missive which Sale and MacGregor laid before the Jalalabad Council of War. When presently there came a communication from government intimating that the continued occupation of Kandahar was regarded as conducive to the interests of the state, Knott and Rawlinson were in a position to congratulate themselves on having anticipated the wishes of their superiors. The situation, however, became so menacing that early in March its Afghan inhabitants were expelled from the city of Kandahar to the last soul, and then Knott, leaving a garrison in the place, took the field in force. The old soldier, wary as he was, became the victim of Mirza's wily strategy. As he advanced, the Afghans retired, skirmishing assiduously. Leaving Knott in the Turnuk Valley, they doubled back on Kandahar, and in the early darkness of the night of the 10th March, they furiously assailed the city gates. They fired one of the gates, and the swarming Ghazis tore down with fury its blazing planks and the red-hot ironwork. The garrison behaved valiantly. Inside the burning gate, they piled up a rampart of grain bags, on which they trained a couple of guns loaded with case. For three hours after the gate fell did the fanatics hurl assault after assault on the interior barricade. They were terribly critical hours, but the garrison prevailed, and at midnight, with the loss of many hundreds, the obstinate assailants sullenly drew off. Not, although urgently summoned, was unable to reach Kandahar until the 12th. Kandahar was fortunately preserved, but at the end of March the unpleasant tidings came that Gunzi, which British valour had carried by storm three years before, had now reverted into Afghan possession. The siege had lasted for nearly three and a half months. In mid-December the besiegers occupied the city in force, introduced by the citizens through a subterranean way, and the garrison, consisting chiefly of a regiment of sepoys, withdrew into the citadel. The bitter winter and the scant rations took the heart out of the natives of the warm and fertile Indian plains. But nevertheless, it was not until March 6th that the garrison, under pledge of being escorted to Peshawar with colours, arms and baggage, marched out. The unfortunates would have done better to have died a soldierly death with arms in their hands and the glow of fighting in their hearts. As the event was, faith with them was broken, and save for a few officers who were made prisoners, most were slaughtered or perished in a vain attempt to escape. During his long isolation, Knott's resources had been seriously depleted, and he had ordered up from Sindhi a brigade escorting much-needed treasure, ammunition, and medicines. Brigadier England was entrusted with the command of this force, whose assemblage at Quetta was expected about the end of March. Pending its gathering, England had moved out toward the entrance of the Kojuk Pass, where he met with a sharp and far from creditable repulse, and fell back on Quetta, miserably disheartened, suggesting in his abjectness 
that Nott should abandon Kandahar and retire on him. The stout old soldier at Kandahar waxed wroth at the limpness of his subordinate, and addressed to England a biting letter, ordering peremptorily the latter's prompt advance to Kandahar, engaging to dry nurse him through the Kojuk by a brigade sent down from Kandahar for the purpose, and remarking sarcastically, quote, I am well aware that war cannot be made without loss, but yet perhaps British troops can oppose Asiatic armies without defeat. Unquote. Thus exhorted, England moved to find his march through the Kojuk protected by Weimar's sepoys from Kandahar, who had crowned the lateral heights before he ventured into the pass, and he reached Kandahar without maltreatment on the tenth of May bringing to Nott the much-needed supplies which rendered that resolute man equal to any enterprise. It remained, however, to be seen whether any enterprise was to be permitted to him and to his brother commander lying in camp on the Jalalabad plain. Lord Ellenborough, the successor of Lord Auckland, had struck a firm if somewhat inexplicit note in his earliest manifesto, dated March 13th. A single sentence will indicate its tenor, quote, Whatever course we may hereafter take must rest solely on military considerations, and hence, in the first instance, regard to the safety of our detached garrisons in Afghanistan, to the security of our troops now in the field from unnecessary risks, and finally, to the re-establishment of our military reputation by the infliction upon the Afghans of some signal and decisive blow. Unquote. Those were brave words, if only they had been adhered to. But six weeks later, his lordship was ordering not to evacuate Kandahar and fall back on Quetta until the season should permit further retirement to the Indus, and instructing Pollock, through the commander in chief, to withdraw without delay every British soldier from Jalalabad to Peshawar, except under certain specified eventualities, none of which were in course of occurrence. Pollock temporised, holding on to his advanced position by the plea of inability to retire for want of transport, claiming mildly to find discretionary powers in the government instructions, and cautiously arguing in favour of an advance by a few marches to a region where better climate was to be found, and whence he might bring to bear stronger pressure for the liberation of the prisoners. Nott was a narrower man than Pollock. When he got his orders, he regarded them as strictly binding, no matter how unpalatable the injunctions. Quote, I shall not lose a moment, he wrote, in making arrangements to carry out my orders without turning to the right or the left, and without inquiring into the reasons for the measures enjoined, whatever our own opinions or wishes may be. Unquote. He reluctantly began preparations for withdrawal. Carriage was ordered up from Quetta, and a brigade was dispatched to withdraw the garrison of Kailata Gilzai, and to destroy the fort which Craigie had so long and valiantly defended. It would be tedious to detail the vacillations, the obscurities, and the tortuosities of Lord Ellenborough's successive communications to his two generals in Afghanistan. 
Pollock had been permitted to remain about Jalalabad until the autumn should bring cooler marching weather. Nott had been detained at Kandahar by the necessity for crushing menacing bodies of tribal levies, but as July waned, his preparations for withdrawal were all but complete. On the fourth of that month, Lord Edinburgh wrote to him, reiterating the injunctions for his withdrawal from Afghanistan, but permitting him the alternatives of retiring by the direct route along his line of communications over Quetta and Sukkur, or of boxing the compass by the curiously circuitous retirement by a Gunzi, Kabul and Jalalabad. Pollock, for his part, was permitted, if he thought proper, to advance on Kabul in order to facilitate Knott's withdrawal, if the latter should elect to retreat by the circuitous route which has just been described. One does not care to characterize the heads-I-win-tails-you-lose policy of a governor-general who thus shuffled off his responsibility upon two soldiers who previously had been sedulously restricted within narrow, if varying, limits. Their relief from those trammels set them free, and it was their joy to accept the devolved responsibility and to act with soldierly initiative and vigour. The chief credit of the qualified yet substantial triumph over official hesitation certainly belongs to Pollock, who gently yet firmly forced the hand of the Governor-General, while Knott's merit was limited to a ready acceptance of the responsibility of a proffered option. A letter from Knott intimating his determination to retire by way of Kabul and Jalalabad reached Pollock in the middle of August, who immediately advanced from Jalalabad, and his troops having concentrated at Gundamuk, he marched from that position on 7th of September. His second division, commanded by McCaskill, following the next day. Pollock was woefully short of transport, and therefore was compelled to leave some troops behind at Gundamuk, and even then could carry only half the complement of tentage. But his soldiers, who carried in their haversacks seven days' provisions, would gladly have marched without any baggage at all, and the chief himself was eager to hurry forward, for Knott had written that he expected to reach Kabul on the 15th of September, and Pollock was burning to be there first. In the Jugdulluk Pass on the 8th, he found the Gilzais in considerable force on the heights. Regardless of a heavy artillery fire, they stood their ground, and so galled Pollock's troops with sharp discharges from their jezails that it became necessary to send infantry against them. They were dislodged from the mountain they had occupied by a portion of the Jalalabad Brigade, led by gallant old General Sale, who had his usual luck in the shape of a wound. This Jugdulluk fighting was, however, little more than a skirmish, and Pollock's people were to experience more severe opposition before they should emerge from the passes onto the Kabul plain. On the morning of the 13th, the concentrated force had quitted its camp in the Tazin Valley, and had committed itself, without due precaution, to the passage of the ravine beyond, when the Afghan levies with which Akbar Khan had manned the flanking heights opened their fire. 
the sirdar had been dissuaded by captain troop one of his prisoners from attempting futile negotiations and advised not to squander lives in a useless opposition akbar had replied that he was too deeply committed to recede and that his people were bent on fighting they were not balked in the aspiration which assuredly their opponents shared with at least equal zeal pollock's advance guard was about the middle of the defile when the enemy was suddenly discovered blocking the pass in front and holding the heights which pollock's light troops should have crowned in advance of the column akbar's force was calculated to be about fifteen thousand strong and the afghans fought resolutely against the british regiments which forced their way up the heights on the right and left the ghazis dashed down to meet the red soldiers halfway and up among the precipices there were many hand-to-hand -hand encounters in which the sword and the bayonet fought out the issue the afghans made their last stand on the rocky summit of the huft kotul but from this commanding position they were finally driven by broadfoot's bloodthirsty little gurkhas who hillmen themselves from their birth chased the afghans from crag to crag using their fail cookeries as they pursued it was akbar khan's last effort and the quelling of it cost pollock the trivial loss of thirty-two killed and one hundred and thirty wounded there was no more opposition and it was well for the afghans for the awful spectacles presented in the cord kabul pass traversed on the following day kindled in pollock's soldiers a white heat of fury Quote, the bodies wrote backhouse in his unpublished diary lay in heaps of fifties and hundreds our gun-wheels crushing the bones of our late comrades at every yard for four or five miles indeed the whole march from gundamuk to kabul may be said to have been over the bodies of the massacred army unquote. pollock marched unmolested to kabul on the fifteenth and camped on the old racecourse to the east of the city not in evacuating kandahar divided his force into two portions the weaker of which general england took back to india by quetta and succour while on august ninth not himself with two european battalions the beautiful sepoy regiments of which he had a right to be proud and his field guns marched away from kandahar his face set towards kabul his march was uneventful until about midway between kilati gilzai and gunzi when on the twenty eighth the cavalry unsupported and badly handled in a stupid and unauthorized foray lost severely in officers and men took to flight in panic and so gave no little encouragement to the enemy hanging on knott's flank two days later shumshuddin the afghan leader drew up some ten thousand men in order of battle on high ground left of the british camp not attacked with vigour advancing to turn the afghan left in reprisal the enemy threw their strength on his left supporting their jezail fire with artillery whereupon not changed front to the left deployed and then charged the afghans did not wait for close quarters and not was no more seriously molested 
Reaching the vicinity of Gunzee on September 5th, he cleared away the hordes hanging on the heights which encircle the place. During the night the Afghans evacuated Gunzee. Soon after daylight, the British flag was waving from the citadel. Having fulfilled Lord Ellenborough's ridiculous order to carry away from the tomb of Sultan Mahmud in the environs of Gunzee the suppositious gates of Somnath, a once famous Hindu shrine in the Bombay province of Katiawar, Nott marched onward unmolested till within a couple of marches of Kabul, when near Maidan he had some stubborn fighting with an Afghan force which tried ineffectually to block his way. On the 17th he marched into camp four miles west of Kabul, whence he could discern, not with entire complacency, the British ensign already flying from the Balahisar, for Pollock had won the race to Kabul by a couple of days. End of the first part of chapter 9